Welcome to the Dorothy House podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Hi, I'm uh, Anthony Millard, father of Benj, husband of Joe. Uh, hi, I'm Joe. I'm Benj's mum, head of a charity that we set up in his memory. It's an emotional topic. And with the sadness, you have to uh, put in perspective. Is it better to have had something and enjoyed that time? I know we've lost him, but would we do everything again? And of course we would. He was just, he was just the loveliest of sons. We couldn't have asked for more. He was, uh, you know, on a physical side, he was tall. He was six foot three, had an amazing physique because he went to the gym every day. He loved his food, but he loved his fitness. So he ate well, but he also, you know, looked after his health really well. He was funny. Uh, he loved sport. He loved music. He loved festivals. I don't get me wrong. Life wasn't perfect, but then you've got to work at that. And every day's different. Looking back, we would have wanted more or as in man on fire, that little caption, I wished I'd had more time. <laughs> yeah. But he lived a very full life. He loved holidays. He loved travel. He went to New Zealand for six months with his few of his friends. And he worked for Nationwide and they could buy holiday in Nationwide because we didn't know anyone who had as many holidays and weekends away as he did. So he, uh, yeah, absolutely loved time away, didn't he? Which I think he did more in his 33, nearly 34 years than we've done in our 60-odd. Thank goodness he did. But yeah, we're thankful that he did. We used to laugh and his grandparents would say, how is he away again? Because every week when we see them, they'll ask how the children are. And I, oh, Ben's in Spain or Benja's in Vegas, Barcelona or friends. Vegas. Or, yeah. He loved his friends. He loved his family. He could be a little, you know, minx as a, they all can. But, but in terms of his feelings towards us and his family, you know, he loved us and we certainly loved him. And that was actually a great comfort when we did lose him that we knew he died knowing how much he was loved. But yeah, he was just just a lovely, lovely person, which makes his loss so much harder, I think, just because he's a big void in our life, isn't it? But we've got to carry on. Mm. Yeah, we've said it many times, haven't we, since we've lost him, that if as a baby he was handed to us and we were told you can have him for 33 years or not have him at all, you'd grab those 33 years. We feel very blessed. fortunate and blessed. To have, to have had him in our life. I wish we had more time, but it's just sad that he had to suffer the last year or so. Mm. Not good place. Mm. And we couldn't do anything. Yeah. That's the hard part as a parent, how helpless you feel when you spent your whole life providing, you know, everything you do. From the minute you find out you're pregnant, everything you do is built around that child and then your children and then your family to provide for them and in terms of education and their home and you know their interests, all those things. And then suddenly you're in a position where you, you are helpless, you can't do anything. It's out of your control. The first time we knew anything was wrong with him was actually the week of our daughter's wedding and uh, our, 
I was in town with my daughter and she just happened to drop into conversation that Benj had been to hospital that week. And I was like, you know, he's someone who never went to the GP or the doctors, he was certainly fit and healthy. And I was like, went to the hospital and she said, and, and it was like, oh, I didn't want you to know, he doesn't want you to know, mum, he wants you to enjoy the wedding. So we had the wedding, saw him then the day after and sort of mentioned it to him and he brushed it off and said, oh, it was nothing, mum. I was just in a lot of pain. I had a lot of pain in my stomach. He said, uh, but they laughed at me when I got to A&E. He said, you know, big strapping lad like me. He said, I felt embarrassed. They said it was indigestion that he had. Um, so he gave him a Meprosol, you know, let him out. So that was the sort of first we heard of it and that was in the March. And then by the June, he was just becoming, it was just like his get up and go, got up and gone. He just had changed so much in terms of what he wanted to do or where he was wanting to go. And he said he just didn't feel well, but he didn't know why. Around March time as well, he'd seen his own GP and was told he was depressed, um, was put on antidepressants. But by the June, the, the depressed feeling was worse and he just wasn't picking up. So we sort of said to him, maybe you need to go back to see your GP. Maybe the antidepressants aren't right for you because you trust what they say, don't you? that maybe you need to go on to a different antidepressant. So uh, he went back to his GP. We're now in sort of July. He went back to see his GP. And the GP said, yes, he would change his tablets. Benj stood up and it said to us that he actually got to the door of the GP surgery and turned around and said, look, you know, if you're, the, if you're depressed, do you struggle when you walk up the stairs? Do you get really breathless sort of doing any walking, lifting a box out of the car when you've been shopping? And the GP said, yes, if you're severely depressed, yes, you can have all those symptoms. He said, but I'll run a blood test just to make sure. So that was on the Thursday. Early hours Friday morning, Benj was getting phone calls, which come through with nothing acknowledging them. So he was ignoring them. But this is early hours of the morning. And he got to us about three o'clock in the morning. And it was, uh, you know, he answered it very abruptly and quite aggressively. So who the hell's phoning? And it was the IUH asking him to go in that he was so severely anemic, he was at risk of heart failure. So um, we got the phone call then on the Friday morning to say that's what he was in the hospital for. And that was really the start of it because that was the first time something had been picked up. And he phoned us from the hospital and he said, I don't want you to worry, mum. And he knew I would be beside myself. A, because... He, he was so poorly, but also my father had died very suddenly of a heart failure when he was 48. So he knew what the family sort of link was and knew I'd be stressing out about it. And I said to him, you know, do they know what's causing it? And he said, it's some sort of internal bleed mum, but they don't know. So as soon as I got off the phone, you know, I'm Googling and I know how to research, you know, Googling uh, internal bleed and anemia. Um, and it came up with sort of five things, four of them related to women in terms of heavy menstrual, um, you know, or a car accident or giving birth. There was various things. And the fifth one was bowel cancer. And everything in your head screams, oh, it can't be that. It can't be that. You know, just don't panic. Just let's wait and see. And then they put him forward for an urgent colonoscopy. And he had that done in August. And they said from that colonoscopy that Yes, there was something, but they weren't sure what. Um, and it had been a poor colonoscopy. They didn't get good samples. So I had to go back, had a second colonoscopy, didn't they? Yeah, he did turn up a month early, got the date. They sent out all the prep that you have to take and he took it, but got the date wrong and turned up 
but they were very good and did put him through. He had to wait all day, but they did put him through. Yeah, and then we found out in September that it was um, that it was bowel cancer. Typically, it wasn't straightforward bowel cancer in terms of when they did the PET scan on him. His spread was up to his neck, and it wasn't typical bowel cancer spread. And then it was 10 days later, we had to go back for the results of the biopsy they did on his neck to see what the cancer was in his neck. And, you know, to this day, I can still see him walking into the hospital. He was only 10 days past having his bowel resection. He went to Bath, had his hair cut. was always, always liked to look good, didn't he? And um, walked in with so much confidence, believing that it would be, you know, the best outcome really, because he felt so much better having had the tumour removed. So I did feel for the surgeon that day. It was really difficult news to deliver, but it was stage four bowel cancer and very advanced bowel cancer. And Benj loved his sport. He loved rugby. He loved the football. And they were doing this at the World Cup in Japan the following year. And even as a child, he'd always wanted to go to Japan. He'd done a project at school when he was young about Japan and the fact that there was going to be rugby in the World Cup all in Japan. And that was the first thing he said to him when he said, you know, I'm really sorry, it's stage four and it's advanced. And he said, will I get to Japan next year? That's all I need to know. And the surgeon just told him to go and live his life and do all the things he wanted to do. And he did ask us the question, you know, we were then referred to the oncology unit. And again, he would ask the question, you know, I need to know how long I've got. He was quite open to the, to the answer because he also had this dogged determination that he would be able to, he would be able to beat it as well. So yeah, his prognosis from the start was poor. Without any treatment, they said, so he was diagnosed in September, they said he would have till Christmas. And they also said from the start, they didn't think he would respond to treatment because of, he had a BRAF mutation in his, with the cancer. So it, it was, it was difficult. He went into a very dark place, kind of shut himself off, pulled the duvet over his head, didn't want to speak to anyone for several days, made the decision that he wouldn't have treatment initially. But then he started to become more unwell. And within the space of like his diagnosis and what would be 10 weeks later, he had spread to his kidneys, his liver, his lungs. So then he started on the treatment just to try and try and halt it really. It's incredibly hard to hear that news. You found it unbearable, didn't you? And I, we didn't get one bit of good news from the day we, he was diagnosed. There was not one point where there was good news that, you know, it hadn't spread or it hadn't done something or the, you know, prognosis never changed. You, but you cling on to hope. You just, yeah. I think I realised, we both realised, when you're on this journey, the things you hang on to for hope, like the two cancers or... And you just live in this ever-changing landscape of hope that if that hope goes, then you find another thing to hope for. And that's that's just kind of how you keep going with it, really. And he was so hopeful himself. He was so sure that he was so strong and had so much strength physically that he would be able to, yeah. Do you beat cancer? I don't know the words. That, yeah. He would survive cancer, I think. But. It's, it's tough. Mm. And uh, it's really cruel. I know I upset you when I said it, but 
when I saw him. Bad. I could just see. I thought, if I was in his place, I'd want to end it for me. It, it was a cruel illness. You know, the cancer fractured his spine, so he lost his ability to, you know, to be able to walk well. Um, walked with a, with, he had a big a brace in the end. Yeah, it was, it was cruel. How quickly, how quickly it stripped somebody of, of their, yeah, his, his strength and his physicality. And uh, yeah, it was tough for him, particularly someone who took so much pride in his strength and his physique. And I'm not a negative person generally. I, I just had, a, let's say, a sinking feeling that we were going to lose. You know, something so precious. But others might come in and say, oh yeah, but there's medicines. and But it just, you just know. And I hoped I was wrong, but I think, so I was stealing myself. Worst case scenario, it's just my, my makeup. So it wasn't being negative all the time, but I just knew, I knew what the end game was. We didn't know when. You do think about lots of things, don't you? Well, I thought at the time, I'm going to need some help out when this settles down, when Benji has gone. He was still with us at the time, but I just thought, right. And I thought, I'm going to ask. I'm not going to think, I'm just going to do it, because I'm going to need help. And uh, another little saviour, I, I had uh, Linda. It's not say spilling the beans, but you know, I have a good cry, but that's okay. Uh, but she was... She just helped greatly and always just put things in perspective where try not to be too hard on yourself. Not that I thought I was, but you want to try and do better. But there's time you just need a bit of time for yourself. Because obviously this, as a couple, I don't need to ask Joe, how are you feeling? You just got to look at her eyes and vice versa. So you try and deflect that. And you just bottle it up and try and deal with it another way. But uh, so that was Linda helped me there. Yeah, Linda Linda formed the group, didn't she? She put forward the suggestion of the group and then invited partners as well because I wasn't I wasn't counselled by Dorothy House. Um, I had some counselling with the Y Charity in Prune. So initially, I was a bit reluctant to join because I felt it was his space and I know how important your own space is to be able to discuss your emotions really yeah I think there's about 12 of us in the group that meet once a month and it's just we've been doing it for two years now coming up two years so we form friendships with they're all um, parents who've lost an adult child or one of the couples have lost two of their children to breast cancer um, two of their daughters so yeah we're a really supportive group and again it's a safe space because as you know, time rolls on, we're four years on now. So we, Benj is a daily part of our discussions as he has been for the 34 years he was alive. You know, as a parent, you think about your children all the time and you're interested in what they're doing and you're interested in, you know, um, who they're meeting up with and those things. And those conversations happen when you speak to them at the weekends and stuff. And you know what their week entails more or less. And we still have that with our girls. And the only thoughts we can now have with Benj are, are memories that we have of him 
the thinking about him doesn't stop. You know, it's been there all those years. And it, within, you know, we've got some great friends, haven't we? There comes a point where you don't feel you can talk about it as much or raise it as much. We do within our own intimate family and with our, with our daughters, but less so outside of that circle. Whereas this group once a month is our safe space, our place where any one of us can talk about, you know, a bad day or a, a more difficult time or there's an anniversary or a birthday or something that's coming up that is, is a bit more challenging. But we equally now just talk about holidays people have or, you know, the nice times you've done in the things we've done in the month since we've seen each other. But there's always that place where, you know, 12 of you, different people are going to be going through different things. And while you might be in that good space because it's nothing too significant for you, one of the other members of that group, it might be a really significant birthday or date or something coming up. And it's just that freedom to be able to talk, isn't it? And express how we feel. and Without being judged. Without being judged. You know, yeah. You've got that point here. Oh, you've lost someone. Oh, you'll get over it. Goodbye. Um, yeah. Oh, it's all right. You, you don't want to believe it. You don't want to. It's really hard to register and acknowledge. And so everything becomes that hope, hope that there'll be a cure, hope that there'll be a medicine, hope that there'll be something. And that was very much the kind of road I walked, I think. It's just, I just hung on to every bit of hope I could hang on to. But also there was this huge withdrawal within myself. It's like a protective thing to just protect me, try and protect him. Certainly pulled away from you a lot because I just couldn't cope, couldn't cope with sort of, yeah. I can remember having a conversation with you quite early in, into his diagnosis because there's times you just break down and cry because you're still, you're still leading your normal life. You're still going to work. You're still seeing everybody you're still doing everything that is normal when everything is so not normal and you're dealing with all these huge emotions and home and our house was the safe place where you could break down or you could cry or if it wasn't the car or you'd come in I can remember saying to you quite early on he's so good at wanting to make things right and wanting to comfort and wanting to change you know what's happening and you can't and I said you've just got to let me cry don't try and stop me crying don't try and comfort me I don't want that right now I just need to be able to let it out and we kind of and it's so against how we are because we're so tactile and it and loving it was just a, a I just need to be able to have somewhere I can cry somewhere I can let it out and that that's the same since we've lost him isn't it because it's the one safe space you can do that, but it does it does put a does put a strain on you. It's just changed and altered, and it's like a before life and an after life that you have to you have to learn to live a different life from the minute you get the diagnosis. Really, I think, and I think it was from that day we started grieving because it was the prognosis was so poor from from day one that. You're grieving everything about him, for him, his future really. As parents, you know, anybody who's a parent, you have these ideas, don't you, about what you want for your children. And the natural thing is that you will out, 
you know, they will outlive you, not you outlive them. So all your hopes and dreams are kind of pinned on these these little babies that you produce, aren't they? So we were very thankful that we got to see him turn into the man he became. But there was just so much more ahead for him. So it's uh, yeah, it's a hard road to walk when you when you have the diagnosis. I just knew deep down it was not going to end well. So all I concentrated on was just keep it going, really. Just to be there for him and the rest of the family. Because tomorrow's another day. And no matter how, you know, what's happened today, you still got to get going tomorrow. But it's not, you know, it's not, it's not all bad. Yes, we've lost Benj and it was really sad, but, you know, I just, I just cherish that time. And every day is a good day. Just a, some. Some of it. We've always said to our children to try and find the positive in every day, no matter what. And it's uh, the day he died in the hospice. And he died in the morning. I think I was still there at six o'clock in the evening. Just didn't want to leave. Didn't want to leave the security of it, I think, really. It had become a really safe place. And it's amazing how you need safe places when you're feeling so vulnerable yourself. And our daughter was still there and um, she was in the family room and I walked in, sort of asked her if she was getting ready to go home. And uh, she looked at me and said, um, Mum, don't ask me to find a positive in today. Don't ask me to find... She said, because I bet you can't find one in today. She didn't use the F word, did she? <laughs> no, don't know. But I can remember saying to her that even though it was the saddest day of my life, I actually was thankful that he had died a good death. So I said, yeah, there is a positive in today. I don't know what a bad, a really bad death would be, but I, I was thankful that it was, he was given the chance to die well. <laughs> and I, I can remember going, oh, I knew you'd find something that it was like, but I was, I was, I was thankful that, and I was thankful that we were able to have time with him afterwards. And I was thankful that we were able to spend time with him in the chapel. And yeah, I was just thankful. That it, it was, I wouldn't say great relief, but when you've seen someone put up with so much, I prayed every night. For it to stop. It is that, it is that battle between not wanting to let him go, but also needing it to stop. And he needed it to stop. He said himself several times he needed the pain to stop. And you don't ever want to see anyone. You know, we're animal lovers. We would never put an animal through what some people go through. It was it was a, a tough road to walk. But I think that's where Dorothy House for us were incredible because... He became very much a cancer patient within the NHS system. But he was Benj when we got to Dorothy House. And that was just, just the best thing, wasn't it? They, he, was, he was a person again. He wasn't an illness or he wasn't a treatment or he wasn't, you know, someone in a process. He, you know, they kind of restored his dignity, I think, really. Um, 
and just helped so much for him to face his own mortality. And it was uh, it was it, it was a difficult few days, but in some ways we look on those days as probably the best ten days of of that whole illness period and whole part of his life. We were able to share some time with him. Share so much time with him. We were there twenty four seven. We moved in. We were so fortunate um, that he, you know, when he entered the hospice, we were told he had a couple of days. So he went, went in on the Friday, and um, but he survived 11 days, 10 or 11 days. Um, but we were able to be with him, and he wanted us there. You know, he would say, Mum, will you still be here tonight? Yeah, we're still here. We, we were sleeping there. Our daughter came down from Lancaster. She slept there. Um, and the night before he died, my sister, sister-in-law, his two sisters, you know, the baby, us, we were all there. We were all... Um, so it just turned helped greatly yeah yeah what was the you know going to be the worst the worst thing to face it just helped the unity and that's what I said earlier about we know that he died knowing how much he was loved and we knew how much he loved us and yeah we would always be so thankful to the fact that we could spend all that time with him uh, and they really did help him to find a peace within himself, which it wasn't there in those whole 10 days. It only came in the last few days, but it did come. Um, and that that's also very comforting because obviously you see the time where he's battling and really fighting that he just didn't want to die. He was too young to die and um, didn't want to die. Um, and then... You also saw the acceptance of, yeah. I mean, he called us into the room, didn't he? And told us what he, all his plans for his funeral, the songs he wanted played, where he wanted his ashes to go. He was so calm about it all, wasn't he? We were all in floods and just, you know, but but he was very, you know, none of you were like to hear this, but actually, I need, I need to tell you. But he had it all planned out, didn't he? I'm telling you, I was... At the moment, he said, I was just out. Because when he came in from the hospital on the Friday, they didn't think that he'd see Sunday, did they? Because yeah. he wanted a good place. And yeah. then come Sunday morning, was it? Yeah, he wanted to see everyone. So it was like meeting the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was just brilliant. Because yeah. people, all the way around the pathway, Dorothy House, because it was, Sunshine, yeah. Texts were flying, weren't oh. they? Because when we went into the hospice, we were in when we were told at the IUH that that there was no more treatment options, and um, one of the doctors from Dorothy House was actually in the ho hospital at that time, and she came into the room to see us, and um, she said, you know, explained what would happen and that they would help ease his pain and sort his pain and stuff, and she said we could do it in t one of two ways: we can uh, keep you very alert and reduce your pain or we can eradicate your pain but you will be you will be very sleepy and I can remember him look turning to me and sort of saying yeah mum I can't do this anymore I can't deal with any more pain I just need it to stop and I you know 
respected his wishes and they sedated him, not till we got to the hospice, but he just went into this sleep and then I had this massive panic that I wouldn't hear his voice again. <laughs> but you know, you enter the hospice being told he has a couple of days and then he's just sedated to this, uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to have any contact with it or, you know, conversation with him. But that again was where the hospice was so good that the next morning you have a review, we were called into the room with a doctor and I just posed the question and so I said, are you able to rouse him from this sedation? Are you able to give him the chance to say his wishes again, really? because on the Friday that was how he felt, the pain was enormous and he needed it to stop. He might feel differently Saturday. And they were, again said, yeah, of course we can, you know, and it, it will be his choice. And so they reduced the sedation and, and he woke up and he was talking to us and, and they were able to keep on top of his pain, but also let him have those conversations. And it was, it was just lovely, wasn't it? And then on the Sunday, um, I had a pair of flip-flops on that the dog had chewed, but they were so comfortable. <laughs> and he looked down and said, Mum, I can't believe you've got those flip-flops on. And I said, but they're really comfortable. And he said, well, couldn't you have got another pair? And I said, well, we got them in New Zealand. No, I couldn't. And at the time, Aunt Santi was over from New Zealand. And he said, you should have got Shirley to bring them. And he said, will I get to see Shirley, Mum? Uh, and I said, well, do you want to? And he said, Mum, I want to see everyone. I want to see everyone. And we sent this text out and people were there within, oh, such a short space of time, weren't they? And it was, it was just like lining up to see. Pope. Yeah. Yeah. And our, our nephew is disabled and he'd had his leg amputated and he was really struggling to wear his prosthetic leg. But again, it was this determination to show Benj and... He walked down, walked all the way down the corridor in Dorothy House with his prosthetic leg on to go in and see Benj. And the two of them you know, gave, gave each other the hugest hug. And you know, it was just, there was a lot of really lovely memories there in those, those last few days. His friends came over and took him out in the gardens and we could hear them, this the most raucous laugh down in the, the shed where they were just... Yeah, it was just lovely, wasn't it? Under my shield is the heart's broken. That's for both of us. The outbursts of grief are momentary. Grief itself, I think, walks alongside us now. I think initially you're wrapped in a cloak of grief. It's it's just, it just consumes you. It's just, uh, yeah, there feels no way out. I sort of felt it was a bit like a fog that only I could see, no one else. It was just thick. Just It just was the most awful, awful time. There's more colour in the world now. There's more joy in the world. But it never leaves you. It's, you know, you can be driving along in the car and you have a thought and you're reduced to tears or a piece of music comes on and it reduces you to tears or just that longing that never goes away that you could have that life that you had before because it was, wasn't a perfect life, but for us it was perfect. It never leaves you, but it doesn't consume you in the same way. But yeah, it's it's like your constant companion, really, I think. 
And you just have to learn to live your life in a different way. And I think for us, the different way is putting our energy into the charity. I can go back anytime. You'd be sad. No, not sad at all. It's a bloody lovely place. Yeah. There's the fireflies I know, but they can't. Yeah. That's our time we had. Yeah. At the end. Yeah. They gave us, uh, well, it's almost like giving you the biggest hug, wrapping you in the warmest blanket, even give you a hot chocolate if you wanted it. Just have that ability to make you feel safe. I can remember walking in that day with Benj. I travelled in the ambulance with him from the hospital and they sort of took him down the corridor and I just felt I was going to fall apart and one of the nurses just put her arm around with me and sat with me on a chair. And just even from that first moment, talked me through what was going to happen, where he was going to go, what they were going to do, and that I could go and see him shortly. And it was just, I think it was the openness, the honesty, the calmness, just made me feel safe. And I sent you a text, I think, saying, he's going to be all right, now he's in here. And I meant all right, spiritually, emotionally, I just knew they were going to help him. I knew we were there, that the end was coming. But I just knew at that point, I felt safe. I felt as vulnerable as I felt, I felt safe. And they've just been so, so supportive in so many ways. We could never repay them no. for what they, what they did no. for us what they enabled, and naively had no idea of the costs involved in providing the care that they did. You know, Benj was in 24 hours for 10 days, and us as well, wasn't it? Sanctuary for me. Was the words I was going to use. Comfort, safety. So it's important to us to know that, that they're there, who knows whenever we might need their services again. But if it's not for us ourselves, it's to be able to support for them, you know, for other people to benefit from those services. Because it just brings, brings a comfort. And I think it's because of the openness and the honesty that they, that they provide. Um, and it honestly does feel like you're wrapped in the cosiest of uh, blankets when you're there. I don't mean this to be glib, but it could be like a staircase up to heaven, and on the way up is Dorothy House. <laughs> so once you get that, it gets everything ready. The departed go on the departed, and then you come back down from that staircase. Whoa, that was that was just amazing. But I think what's been incredible is they haven't abandoned us, have they? It was amazing because mm -hmm. we didn't know. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't know it would be a day. Can we stay here? Of course you can. <laughs> Nothing's too much trouble. Because wow. that's the last thing we needed. Although we only lived quite a short distance. It's about, about 30 minutes, isn't it? But it was helping us to have that connection with our son mm -hmm. and our family. Mm -hmm. and then we got a bigger family, the Dorothy House family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
It's just. And and that continued support now. It wasn't Ben just died, so get on with your life. It's what can we do for you as a family, as individuals? You know, what do you need from us? And they, you know, here we are four years on and that group provides us with what we need. Um, and that, and we need that group. We get to a point in the month where you think, oh, I need, you know, we're meeting tomorrow night. And it's almost like it builds in you so that it's like, oh, I'm glad it's tomorrow night. I'll be able to see everyone, everyone that can go. Um, treasured memories. Mm. It was a sad time, but it's treasured memories. Very special. I can remember being so fearful of the word hospice, so fearful of what was to come. And I think I would be the biggest advocate now of sort of saying, you know, don't be afraid. There's so much more that they offer. It's not just about end of life. It's about living your life the best you can right up until the point they help you and support you to die the best way you can. So, but right up until that point, they're still providing for your for your life and for, and for living. So... Yeah, I mean, there was one time in the hospital, on the hospice bench, wanted, um, couldn't understand why he couldn't have a beer. I was a couple of his friends around and have a beer. And I said, well, have you asked the question? And he asked one of the nurses, you know, well, could I have a beer with my mates? And they went down and they brought back a, these four things of lager, didn't they? And Benjamin didn't actually drink his, but he clinked the glasses with his friends and just had that normality of of life and what life was about. And it was just, again, just such precious moments, wasn't it, for us to sort of see him still living his life and hearing that laughter and, yeah, 